Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. All righty then, let's get to it. Today we're talking about a very serious and scary topic, demystifying and dialoguing about Alzheimer's and other dementias. My first guest today is Dr. Gayatri Devi. One of the things that many of us fear in our lives is getting Alzheimer's, not being able to remember our loved ones or what we had for breakfast in the morning. And also for those that love us, the uh, the long, slow goodbye that is often associated with the disease. So personally, I'm interested in um, the new medicine, uh, what's new on the front in terms of Alzheimer's, because it also touches my heart and my family. My dad was recently diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and I want to um, find out how to prepare, how to support, what's new. Uh, and we've got somebody here that can share this with us. She is absolutely lovely and dynamic. And that is Dr. Gayatri Devi, who is an attending physician at Lenox Hill Hospital, North Weill Health, and a clinical professor of neurology at Downstate Medical Center. She is a board-certified neurologist with additional board certifications in pain medicine, psychiatry, and behavioral neurology, and served on the faculty of New York University's School of Medicine as clinical associate professor of neurology and psychiatry until 2015. She is the author of over 50 publications in peer-reviewed journals on many topics of memory loss, as well as books on estrogen, memory, and menopause. And I am delighted to have her with me today to talk about her new book, The Spectrum of Hope, An Optimistic and New Approach to Alzheimer's Disease and Other Dementias. Welcome, Dr. Debbie. Thanks for joining me on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. I'm delighted to be on your show. 
Uh, well, it it is a pleasure, and, and and we don't we don't associate Alzheimer's and happiness. However, brain health is directly associated with happiness, and this is where I think your work ties in beautifully with with what we do over here. Talk about um, the spectrum of hope, and what what got you interested from the beginning in looking at neuroscience and 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 brain health. Um, so I've. Um always enjoyed the brain. I think it's the last frontier as far as the areas of our body that we don't know much about. Um, So I've always approached the brain from both the organic brain part as well as the mental mind part and looked at both together. And I think nothing is more fascinating than the brain. And I believe there's a lot that we need to know about the brain. Um, So it's it's something that gives me daily joy. I've been working in this field since 1987 and specializing in the area of memory loss since 1994. And to this day, there's not a single day that I come into work and say, wow, I can't believe what a great job I have. I can't believe how much uh, joy and fulfillment I get out of every single day. Um, so along the lines of happiness and your radio show, Uh, your talk radio show, I just want to say that there are a couple of happy facts to know about Alzheimer's. One is that um, most people with Alzheimer's never get diagnosed. They have the pathology in the brain and live their lives out in the community with perhaps some forgetfulness, but um, never actually have clinical symptoms or have clinical symptoms so mild on the spectrum that they never even need treatment. that if people do begin to have symptoms and they do need treatment, then the currently available medication, while not a cure, still is fairly helpful in slowing progression. I have patients in my practice who've stayed stable for 20 years um, from the time I really started subspecializing in the area and come in to see me on their own and live at home alone. Um, So those are some important facts that people are less aware of concerning Alzheimer's. Uh, And I think that's why I wrote the book. Well, and I think this is so hopeful to family members like me. And, and, And there are many people in my circle where there is a diagnosis in the family. And at first, it takes your breath away. It's practically the C word, right? What the C word once was. Mm hmm. And and that's actually true, Lisa, there have been surveys that that have found consistently that patients over the that people all of us over the age of 65 are more afraid of Alzheimer's than we are of cancer, the C word as you call it, <laughs> um, and that's surprising to me. I you know because I'm a neurologist, I also see patients with uh, brain tumors. I see patients with stroke, um, and I've had patients with malignant brain tumors who have less than six to eight months to live, with the best case scenario approach treatment with more gusto and more energy than they do when they've told that they have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. So it's interesting to me that once people, people are so scared about the possibility of a future where they don't recognize themselves, where they don't recognize their loved ones, that they would rather just fold up their lives and not fight or get treatment for their condition when it's Alzheimer's, yeah. whereas in something like a brain tumor that's malignant, where they know they're going to be dead in six to eight months, they will 
oftentimes be fairly aggressive about treating, seeking treatment. So there's a conundrum there. I th- yeah, I, I, I definitely see that. In your book, The Spectrum of Hope, you, you talk about why it's important to tailor the treatment plan for in the individual, that there is not just sort of one-stop shopping. Okay, you received the diagnosis, this is what you're getting, and that's it. This is a very different approach to treating the disease. In terms of right. protocol. And, and Sure. And, you know, we are now doing that with every other disease. When somebody has cardiac disease, it's not one size fits all. People get different types of drugs. They, some people get interventions. Some people get certain kinds of exercise. Other people don't. Some people have dietary modifications. So there is a whole uh, series of different ways to approach heart disease or kidney disease or diabetes. Whereas with the brain, with Alzheimer's, which can affect different parts of the brain, causing different symptoms, um, we kind of take everybody and put them in the same diagnostic in-basket, and we treat them all the same. And one of my friends who works in the field, um, runs a major Alzheimer's center, he says, you know, 20 million people with Alzheimer's disease have 20 million different types of Alzheimer's disease because everybody's brain brings a whole different perspective to the condition, which is very different from the heart because the heart is just a muscle. The brain determines who you are and how you respond. So there are people who have brains that are riddled with plaque where there's the deposits of the pathological deposits that you see in Alzheimer's, the plaques and the tangles, who never have clinical symptoms. Why is that? What is it about their brain that prevents mm. them from having symptoms? Why is it that some people have plaques that are just localized to one area that never ever spreads, never goes to the other parts of the brain, so they stay with just some deficits? Why is it that there are people who have Alzheimer's plaque and pathology who may just have mild symptoms, stay on the mild end of the spectrum, never progress past that? So. There are, and there are people, why is it that you can have a pair of identical twins, one of whom has Alzheimer's and the other doesn't, and live into their 80s? So there are all these questions that we don't know about it, um, and we end up treating all patients the same way. And I think that's doing both the patients and the communities that they live in a major disservice. I agree. And what about the the, the mind, body, spirit, and uh, emotional connection to um, encouraging or maintaining quality of life? It's not just through medicine that we help our loved ones maintain their dignity and quality of life. There's so many other factors that contribute to this. Oh, totally. You know, and I think one of the most, you're so right about that, because one of the most important things that needs to be supported in someone with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or another type of dementia is confidence. you got to keep up their confidence because that's one of the first things that goes. If you or I were to be in a situation where we feel we're going to underperform, one of the things that we need bolstering off, we, we get confidence from our friends, our family. They say, oh, go ahead. You're going to be fine. In patients with Alzheimer's, they constantly have to prove their competence on a daily basis. I had a tragic story which kind of demonstrates the situation. I had a patient who uh, was a woman in her 70s who had been told that she had Alzheimer's. Her husband told everyone else that, including all their friends, 
that she had Alzheimer's. She withdrew into herself. She barely spoke to people. She kind of became really quiet. She used to be a really social person. And I actually met her socially. I was sitting at a dinner table with her, her husband, and a bunch of other of their friends. And people spoke around her. They spoke through her. They spoke to her, but almost at her. And she barely responded. And I thought, okay, well, you know, it's interesting. She doesn't really want to engage. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll carry on the conversation with Dr. Gayatri Devi about her new book, The Spectrum of Hope, an Optimistic and New Approach to Alzheimer's Disease and Other Dementias. To learn more, please visit nymemory.org. Once again, that's nymemory.org, and on Twitter, at Gayatri Devi. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. Wait, wait, wait. Before we take that break, I want to talk about creativity and how making things can make you a happier and healthier person. Today's sponsor, Craftsy, is the digital destination devoted entirely to makers. More than 13 million enthusiasts from artists to quilters and beyond make Craftsy their home for binge-worthy on-demand content and access to the world's top experts and curated supplies, all served up in a fun-loving creative community. This year, resolve to live a more creative life. Sign up for your seven-day free trial at Craftsy.com slash happiness. Once again, it's seven days of free Craftsy at Craftsy.com slash happiness. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about the spectrum of hope, an optimistic and new approach to Alzheimer's disease and other dementias, authored by Dr. Gayatri 
Debbie. And prior to the break, we were talking about a horrific story of a woman who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And Dr. Debbie, once you saw her in your in your practice, you realized there was a misdiagnosis. That is correct, Lisa. I actually found out that she never had Alzheimer's. Her memory was actually better than mine. And what her problem was, was that she had had an atypical form of Alzheimer's, of Parkinson's disease, which was diagnosed as Alzheimer's. However, because of the stigma that's associated with Alzheimer's, because of the sense in amongst all of us living in communities that Alzheimer's is a disease associated with incompetence, people began to treat her differently. And because she was someone who was very sensitive to the stigma, because she didn't want to appear to be incompetent or she didn't want to be made fun of, she stopped talking to people and withdrew into herself. And so it created this dynamic which was basically fueled by fear, stigma, and a lack of knowledge that led to her being shut into herself. And the saddest part of the story is even after I'd made the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease and even after she'd been treated for it, she never was able to re-engage in society that the way she used to because over the preceding five years, she'd just been treated differently. She'd begun to view herself differently. Yeah. And it ended up with her just creating a prison inside of herself that others contributed to, not because they wanted to. Everyone was well-meaning but because we didn't understand that people could be functional and have Alzheimer's, and she was tired of defending her daily competence. She, she didn't mm. want to have to say every day, look, I can do this. I'm, I'm a competent person. I'm functional. And I think that's important for us to remember that most people with Alzheimer's, I would say 90 to 95% of people, are competent and functional and able to function as parents, as grandparents, as yes as um, accountants, as electricians, they can do that. The people who get diagnosed are a small fraction, and a smaller fraction, a very small fraction of those people actually end up in nursing homes. So we have to understand there's a true spectrum with this condition, not be afraid of seeking treatment, and also because of the stigma associated with Alzheimer's, I tell my patients and their families to be a little bit careful about who they tell. Because, yeah. it, because even the most well-meaning persons in the community don't know how to react. They don't know how to act around someone with Alzheimer's. So that's part of the problem. Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because when my dad received his diagnosis, he is the quintessential optimist. You know, he was like, you know, by the time it gets bad, if it were to get bad, I'll be so old, I'll be ready to go. So it, for me, I'm okay. I mean, I, I, he really has such a grasp of this. And as a result, the way the family has reacted to it and, and those around him have reacted to it um, are, are, are quite lovely. Like nobody really pays attention to it because he's made it okay for everybody and his doctors have made it okay for him. That, that is, that's so important, that kind of attitude where someone says, look, you know, I, I have patients, for example, I have a patient who's a very high-functioning executive who has memory issues. He has a more typical kind of Alzheimer's that affects about 50% of people who have it, who are diagnosed. Um, he says to me, he says, so I forget, so what's the big deal? It's not like I have cancer and I'm dying from it next year. 
you know. So he yeah. has the ability to relegate some of his memory functions to his secretary. He's still functioning. Um, and he's able to approach it in a way that makes it easy for people to interact with him. Um, he, creates, he creates the framework, and I think a lot of that comes from the doctors, from the healthcare givers, healthcare providers, and also from the patient themselves. What's interesting, Lisa, what I've noticed time and time again, is it's more commonly the male patient the, the, that, that can respond in that way. Women who have Alzheimer's tend to become more depressed um, and lose confidence a lot faster um, than, than men with Alzheimer's. So it's an interesting um, fact that I've observed in my years in working in this field. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the care we can take of ourselves, um, how we might be able to either prevent if it's possible or help strengthen the brain if there is a diagnosis. Are there any um, games that we can play or processes that we can do that might improve, help improve? So the, 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 the research to date says that between 30 to 60 percent of Alzheimer's can be prevented. The current case, so that's a huge number of cases of Alzheimer's that can be prevented by adopting simple lifestyle modifications. Um, and that includes things like aerobic exercise three days, three, three days a week for 30 minutes. Uh, it includes things like adopting a Mediterranean diet, a diet that's a healthy diet, low in saturated fats, maintaining a normal um, body mass so that you stay on the healthy side instead of gaining weight and, and causing illnesses that come from that, controlling diabetes and heart disease if you happen to have those conditions, controlling high blood pressure, making sure that your alcohol intake is not more than a prescribed amount. Usually I tell my patients they can have a couple of glasses of wine a day or a bottle of beer, um, if, if that, that, but not too much more than that. Um, making sure that you don't involve yourself in activities that can cause more head injuries. So staying away from things that, uh, like boxing, say, or, or activities like that. Um, those are all um, important lifestyle modifications that one can adopt, and in addition to that, staying engaged socially, making sure you have a good circle of friends so you're not socially isolated. That's been shown to help prevent or delay onset of symptoms, even in the face of pathology. Making sure that your brain is as engaged as possible, that you unlock the brain potential that you have by engaging different parts of the brain. So if you're somebody who spends most of your time in front of a computer, go out and take some painting classes. If yeah. you're somebody who is a carpenter who works with furniture, then perhaps you may want to take up Sudoku or uh, take up crossword puzzles. So in other words, engage different parts of your brain so that you're not somebody who's kind of a bookworm who also does Sudoku but never does anything physical or something engaging a different part of the brain. Try to improve your cognitive portfolio and keep different parts of your brain active because that will make the brain more resilient to problems. And understand oh. that 
um, that, that that kind of approach can stave off up to 60% of cases of Alzheimer's. That's incredible. I didn't realize that um, it was that preventative. I want to ask you a question about the relationship between um, untreated depression and Alzheimer's. I was reading a study uh, about shrinkage of the hippocampus, the part of the, for our listeners, I, you know what this is, the part of the brain that, that deals with memory shrinks in prolonged um, untreated depression. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, so the, the hippocampus is a part of the brain that's very, very sensitive to their changes. So if you, if you um, have, if you stop breathing, for example, or if you um, have any trouble with glucose being sent to the brain, the first part of the brain that gets affected is the hippocampus. So the hippocampus is just a very sensitive part of the brain, and there's a small part. It's about the size of your little finger, one on each side of the brain. And what happens is that um, when you have depression, you have high levels of cortisol, and because the hippocampus has a small number of nerve cells, the effects can cause death of the cells in the hippocampus or reduction in the, um, in the strength of the networks from the hippocampus to other parts of the brain. So there's some connection between depression and the onset of Alzheimer's later in life, although people are not sure whether people get depressed when they start to notice that they have cognitive problems and therefore then um, are then later diagnosed with Alzheimer's, or whether depression in and of itself causes or is a risk factor for Alzheimer's. In my practice, I make sure I treat, I'm very uh, aggressive about treating depression, depressive symptoms, both in people who are worried that they're getting Alzheimer's and in people with Alzheimer's, because it um, improves, improves quality of life. We are out of time, and I'm going to ask you to come back because there's so many other areas that I I want to speak with you about and ask questions and 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 um, enrich our listeners' uh, lives. The book that we're talking about today is The Spectrum of Hope by Dr. Gayatri. Debbie. The Spectrum of Hope is an optimistic and new approach to Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. In the book, she gives suggestions for diet, exercise, mental exercises, and recommends really a lifestyle plan to help people have quality of life. I think regardless of the diagnosis, it's just good, solid advice, Dr. Debbie. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Lisa, for having me on the show, and I'd love to come back. Uh, we, we will definitely have you back. And here's the contact information to learn more. Please visit nymemory.org on Twitter at Gayatri Debbie. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at harvestinghappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. 
The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about a very serious and frightening topic for many, and that is demystifying and dialoguing about Alzheimer's and other dementias. The conversation is going to take a little bit of a plot twist as we carry on, but from a different perspective. How do we engage in heartfelt discussion with younger family members. And my guest today is Dan Perkins. Dan has led a multifaceted life, a veteran of the armed forces. He has spent more than 40 years in money management. Several years ago, he began writing and has published four novels, two children's books, and does not show any signs of stopping there. And I have to add, he does about 40 interviews a month. Welcome, Dan. I'm so glad to talk to you. Thank you for having me on. It's an important subject to talk about. I agree. And and before we go on, I, I you and I chatted briefly before we started the, the the discussion here and you mentioned that you have you do these 40 interviews a month and I asked you about your stamina and you said that you're asked this question all the time. Talk a little bit, bit about that and the impact on your health as you age. Well, I'm 72 years of age and uh didn't start writing <clears throat> until about uh oh uh, 5 years ago where I took a class at the local community facility, uh, introductory course of writing mysteries and thrillers. And since then, I've, as you said, I've written four novels. Uh, I write for eight major blogs in the United States, uh, ongoing commentary. Uh, I have a syndicated radio show on small business, and I have a foundation called Songs and Stories for Soldiers. And then I have uh, <clears throat> this new book. Uh, actually, I have two books out at the same time. Um, this one on dementia and a fourth book, uh, a thriller, uh, in continuation of my, uh, trilogy story. And I'm working on my first historical fiction, uh, which is called Abraham Lincoln and the second assassin, which I hope to have out later in 2018. So there's the concept is if you don't use it, you lose it. I, I, maybe I make, I'm an extreme. I use it all the time. But I use it in so many different ways and so many different approaches that it, um, I think it does help me keep my gray matter circulating and percolating. Yeah. It, well, what's interesting is the, is the type of work that you do activates both sides of the brain, right? The right and left hemispheres of the brain. So you're, you're problem solving and you're being creative and you're keeping yourself young or maybe even counterclockwise in your approach. You're growing younger as you age. I hope so. I hope so. I have a, the, the first novel that I wrote in the trilogy. Um, I, I just uh, recently signed an option for a movie deal on that book in the last three weeks. And uh, the producer who, uh, who talked with me, he said, uh, uh, I asked him if he read the book. He said, no, he didn't read the book. He read the cover. And I said, you read the cover, and he said exactly the same thing you said. He said, 
Um, I looked at the cover and your your bio notes, and I looked at 45 years of managing money, highly analytical skills, and yet at the same time, <clears throat> you're an artist and you write you write these stories. So you're using, uh, and he says it's 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 very rare to find an author who also has the analytical disciplines. So you're right, using right and left brain in my writing and and other processes. Uh, <clears throat> helps keep my my brain active. Let's talk about why can't Grammy remember me? This is your latest book, the children's book that really right. helps explain what's going on with um, an aging family member who is returning to the home or coming to live with the family. Well, it could be they could be coming to the home or they could be going into assisted living or institutional care. It is that there's a fundamental change in grandma's life and that fundamental change is the reality of of uh, dementia <clears throat> or alzheimer's and as a result it creates changes within the family structure and what i my goal in writing this book not only is to take a totally different approach in writing about dementia was to say that in the research that i've done the grandchildren are the lost generation and I say that because um, when our parents no longer can function for themselves, then their children are step up, be able to take care of the needs of grandma and grandpa. And they spend so much time trying to figure out what to do because their life has also changed because their parents' lives have changed. Uh, they spend so much time in trying to deal with the needs of grandma and grandpa that they spend very little, if any time, speaking to the children. Uh, what, I have a, another children's book that was published a year ago, and it's called Peter the Little Irish Seal. And I, I went to the, our local library and uh, met with the executive director, and she loved the book. And her assistant bought two copies. And she says, I don't have enough money today. Could you come back after the after the Christmas holidays. I said, sure. So I was went into her office on the December of 2017, still over a year ago, and to pick up the money. And she said, are you writing anything new? And I said, yes. And she said, what is it? And I gave her the title, Why Can't Grammy Remember Me? And she started to cry. And I said, what's the problem? She said, you know, my children absolutely love your Peter the Little Irish Seal book. But about three weeks before Christmas, as difficult as it was, we decided that my mother, my husband and I decided that my mother could no longer safely live alone. And we couldn't find an assisted living facility that had space for her to go to so close to the holiday. So we brought her into our house and, and uh, she's still there. And she said, we are struggling of how to explain to our eight-year-old daughter what's going on with grandma and we desperately need your book. And as I was writing the book and talking to librarians all over the country, as I worked with the the, the children's library librarian uh, in Sanibel, and uh, uh, and she said that this is what this is a book on this subject matter is one of the highest requested books that we have. And I started to do some research, and the New York Times said a couple of years ago that the best book children's book written on dementia was written in 1984, and wow. I looked at it. It was written by Maria Shriver, a uh, good book, but 
I chose to take a totally different approach to try and help people understand, especially children, what's going on in Grammy's brain. And I decided to tell it as a mystery through the eyes of two little girls, Hudson and Charlotte, who are 9 and 12 years of age. And, you know, I want to give uh, some facts here, some statistics about Alzheimer's, that since 2000, the year 2000, deaths from heart disease have decreased by 14%, while deaths from Alzheimer's disease, because we're living longer, has increased by 89%, and that Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. kills more than um, breast cancer and prostate cancer combined. I mean, those are just a couple of stats. Right. Well, the Alzheimer's Association... Uh, I met the executive director on a book tour in Cincinnati. She loved the book, and she gave me some some additional statistics, which I think are dramatic. They're, they believe there are about 5 million people in the United States today who have been diagnosed with dementia. But they also believe there's probably another 2.5 million in the United States who have never been diagnosed. And... As the baby boomers age, they believe by the year 2050, the population of this country who will have dementia will go from 5 million to over 50 million people will have dementia by the year 2050. And the next statistic is they believe, based on the research, if we make it to age 85, the research says we have a one in two chance of getting dementia. Wow. But I'm hopeful, especially after speaking with our prior guest, Dr. Gayatri Devi, about uh, lifestyle interventions to help us live those years healthfully, much like you're doing. I mean, the odds of you getting Alzheimer's or dementia at this point in your life because your brain has been so well exercised is probably reduced. I hope so. But but see, there are there are two issues that uh, don't get talked about a lot. Um, I'm going to give you, uh, I'm not going to give you statistics. I'm just going to give you some facts. According to the Alzheimer's Association, blacks and Hispanics have a much higher incidence of dementia than whites or other races. And they believe that it is because of, not because of genes, not because of heredity, because of diet and exercise. Yeah. And what happens yeah. is, that they have a, there's a commonality of not only is there a higher incidence of Alzheimer's, there is also a higher incidence of diabetes, which can also lead to Alzheimer's and dementia. We're going to need to take a break in a minute, and I want to talk more about that. And, and I want to also talk about the characters in the book, Hudson and, and Charlotte. Um, because okay. there's an interesting dynamic there. Um, the website to learn more about all of your fascinating work, not just the book, Why Can't Grammy Remember Me, is danperkins.guru. Yes, that's a very unique domain, danperkins.guru. Yeah. And they can yeah. also connect with you, listeners. Please connect with Dan at Dan's Beak. That's Twitter handle is at Dan's Beak. And we're going to take that break. And when we come back, we'll carry on the conversation and talk about the characters in the book and understanding the brain. Today with Dan Perkins. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappyatharvestinghappiness.com. 
We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast because we're talking about our memory, our minds, Alzheimer's dementia, and how to talk with younger family members when someone in the family does receive a diagnosis. I'm here today speaking with Dan Perkins, the author of Why Can't Grammy Remember Me? So Dan, talk a little bit about the characters in the book, Hudson and Charlotte, and the dynamic and the mentors or father figures in their lives. Thank you so much for, for suggesting that. Um, when I when I finished the book and I sent it to the editors at my publisher, uh, the first of all they came back and said, "This is a wonderful book. It's it's well written. It tells a beautiful story." But they said one of the things that struck them was the relationship between the two little girls and their dads. And they said in children's a lot of children's literature today, fathers are non-existent. And so they were they were very pleased to be able to, to publish this book uh, for many reasons, but one of them because the father relationship between the two little girls uh, was uh, something very special, and it showed great compassion of the fathers for what the girls were trying to do. Um, we have two little girls who live next door to each other, one's black and one's white, um, purposely because as we just spoke in the other segment of the higher percentage of dementia and diabetes with uh, blacks and Hispanics over whites. And I felt it was important to have a person of color in the book uh, just to make sure that we were representative of the, the challenges. The two little girls are blessed with a gift, their fathers say, for finding things that are lost. And it's a true gift. And they, they not only can they find things that are lost in their house for their their parents, but they're called in all over the neighborhood things that are lost to find. So they decide that they want to help more people. So they go to their dads and they say, we want to start a business to try and help other people in our community find things that are lost. And we want to start a business. And the fathers are kind of shocked at the moment because these are nine and 12 year old little girls, but 
they say, well, what are you going to call your business? And they say, we want to call it H&C, Hudson and Charlotte, lost and found. If you lose it, we can find it. So the fathers <laughs> are very, very excited about their, they, the entrepreneurial spirit of their two little girls. And then they say to their dad, you know, we have a Charlotte or Hudson has this big oak tree in the backyard. It would really be nice if we had a, both a combination treehouse and office. So they kind of chuckle and they said, well, we've been thinking about building something anyway. So we'll, we'll build you a treehouse and an office. And um, they build it and, um, and they don't have any money to advertise. So they spend a whole weekend making up handbills and flyers with their crayons and their pencils. And their dads take them downtown and they spread them all over the town. And they go back to their office and sit in their office and they wait for the people to come to the door. They think they're going to come in droves. And the first week goes by, nobody comes. Second week, nobody comes. Third week, nobody comes. They begin to wonder, well, I wonder if everything that's been lost has already been found. And then the fourth week, there's a knock at the door. And there's a, and they open it. There's a little young man there by the name of James. And he says to them, my dad says that the reason why my Grammy can't remember me is because she's lost her memory. And your flyer says you find things that are lost. Can you find my Grammy's memory? And so clever. They, they have no idea what he's talking about, but they take his name and phone number and they go downstairs and sit on the bottom step and they start talking to their two dads. They know what's going on. They relate to them, their experiences and what's, what happened. One of the dads to their grandmother who got dementia and they start talking about things and then they encourage them to go to the internet and start to learn about what's going on with dementia. And they conclude that they can't find her memory, but maybe they can help James preserve the memory of their grandmother. And they give him at the end of the store, they give him a, a prescription book of things that he needs to do. And then at the end of our story, there are 12 activities that families can start on today when they get the book, uh, beginning the process of preserving the memory of grandma and grandpa. And at, and so it's it's a story that not only can children 9 to 12 or older relate to, I can't tell you the number of parents who tell me how much they learned from the story uh, about what was happening in their parents' brain that they never really understood or was never really explained to them when their parents, one of their parents or both, wound up with dementia. It's also very important. I'm sorry, you want to say something? No, I was going to just jump in and, and say what I like about the book and what you've shared is that oftentimes children feel helpless. And by the existence of these exercises and being able to engage with their their loved ones, their, their aging loved ones, it gives them something to do, to be a part of the care, to be uh, continuing the relationship with that person. It's, it's very special. That's very, very true, but, but there's another, there's, uh, probably not the the best way to say it, but there's a dark side to what you said. Um, what happens is that uh, children of that age that we're talking about, nine to twelve years of age, um, if if they're ignored by their parents or they're ignored by grandma and grandpa, uh, things happen. For example, yes. uh, when I was in Cincinnati on a book tour, I had a meeting with 140 fourth graders, nine and 10 year old. And I said, ask a question. How many of you ever heard of the word dementia? Almost all the hands went up. I said, do any of you have grandmother or grandfathers or aunts or uncles that have, you've been told have dementia? And a number of hands went up. 
Then I asked this question. I said, when you found out that your grandmother had dementia, and when you went to visit her and you asked her a question and she didn't respond by calling your name or answer her question, your question, did you think that you'd done something wrong? All the hands went up. Yeah. So what happens is that there is a there is a guilt association that the reason why grandma is the way she is is because of something that I did wrong. And I said to the children, no, it's nothing you did wrong. And when I said that and I showed them the illustrations in the book the, the, that the, the executive director of the Alzheimer Foundation in Cincinnati said, two greatest examples of helping people understand what's going on in the brain. I showed the kids this, these two pictures. And in the first picture is a, a profile of Hudson's brain, our nine-year-old. And, and, and instead of doing all the typical mind tissue, tissue, I replaced brains and the stem with highways. And in Hudson's mm-hmm. brain, all the highways have green lights at the intersection, which means everything gets through. There's no, imp- no blockage of the messages from the brain to the parts of the body to do certain things. When we turn the page and we look at Grammy's brain, we see the same roads. But what we see is stop signs, do not enter, no left turn, no right turn, go back. So, And then up at the top of the skull, we can see a whole new wave of, of restrictions coming into her brain. This is what happens with dementia, the pathways of how the brain communicates with the rest of the body continually close. And I, I do this analogy uh, to try and help people understand that uh, the, the, this book is dedicated to a, a friend and a client, Marvin Merrill, who was diagnosed with early onset at 52 and died at 62. Wow. By the time he uh, passed away, he, you know, his wife didn't know, children didn't know me. But what I say to you is that if you think about the progression of dementia, we're taking the, the person is going back to the time when they were a newborn baby. They couldn't talk. They couldn't communicate. They had no life experience whatsoever. They needed somebody to feed them, somebody to take care of them. So dementia is a regression back to when we were born. So uh, beautifully described. This book really is wonderful. And I want to also mention that you are donating a portion of the royalties from the book to the Alzheimer's Foundation. And you shared... Another little fact with me that I think is phenomenal in the few weeks since the book launch of Why Can't Grammy Remember Me, um, there have been nearly 150,000 hits on the page for the book, right. which really speaks yes. to the interest. The, the, you know, the marketing people said, said they have never seen anything like that. It's, it's just amazing. And, and I said, I, I felt that... <clears throat> There is a great need to be able to communicate to people. And this book really, I think, is resonating with a lot of people, parents and grandparents, and children seem to love the book. So it's entertaining. It's educational. Illustrations are magnificent. I work with an artist out of India who did them for me. Um, it's, It's a great, as people say, it's not a children's book. It's a resource guide for the family. 
Yeah, indeed. Indeed. We're out of time. And I, I want to congratulate you on the book and, and really uh, speaking to a subject matter that is very, very difficult for families to embrace. My guest today has been Dan Perkins. He is the author of Why Can't Grammy Remember Me? You can learn more at danperkins.guru. Yes, that is a website, danperkins.guru. And you can connect with him on Twitter at Dan's Beak, B-E-A-K. Dan, thanks for being with me on the show. Come back and hang out with me. Thank you. I'd love to. All right. We'll do it. Um, We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Gayatri Devi and Dan Perkins, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.